We got ourselves a passage this morning, if you've read ahead. James, thank you for uh, singing that Advent song. It's actually quite relevant with our passage this morning. Um, Go ahead and flip open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. Remember Paul, you know, this is his second letter. And uh, he wrote this letter for a myriad of reasons, mainly to encourage this church to to instruct them about some things they were having trouble with understanding and also to correct some of their lifestyle behavior. Uh, But mainly he writes this letter to address these three big problems that we've been talking about um, ever since we've started 2 Thessalonians. Remember, they were first off experiencing great persecution from outside of the church. Lots of adversity. They were experiencing that in the first letter, but now they're really experiencing it. It's come on tenfold, and so Paul is addressing that. He's encouraging them about the persecution they've experienced on the outside. But even more distressing than that physical and mental and social persecution they were experiencing from the non-believing world, they were also wrestling with bad teaching. False teaching, particularly about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also some issues about idleness. Now, it's in this chapter, chapter 2, that Paul addresses that false teaching about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, in the first letter, he addressed this issue too, but for a different reason. In that first letter, the believers were worried that the second coming was was happening too slowly. A whole bunch of Christians died, friends and relatives died, and they were worried about what were going to happen to their deceased loved ones since Jesus hadn't come back. Um, In this chapter, or at least in in 2 Thessalonians chapter (laughs) 2, it's the exact opposite of that. They're concerned that Jesus has come too quickly and that therefore there was no future hope. And so they were thinking, maybe it was like Jehovah's Witnesses believe today that Jesus has returned spiritually. That's already happened, but he's not going to return physically or historically. And so that might be something that we're wrestling with. We're not quite sure. But what we do know is they believed they had literally missed the boat. And therefore, there was no future expectation, any future hope of an actual historical, physical second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and resurrection. And because of that, You can imagine that they were hopeless people. Paul tells us in verse 2 that they were greatly troubled in mind, that they were anxious, that they were alarmed. In fact, the words that he uses gives us the word picture in Greek of imagine a boat unanchored in a bay being tossed to and fro by hurricane force winds. That's what they felt like spiritually in their heart and in their mind because they had received some sort of funky teaching that there was no hope, that there was, there was nothing but, but dirt at the end of this life. And they, they were just stressed out about that. They, they, were, they were hopeless people. And so Paul, what he's aiming to do is to step in, to give them comfort, to give them hope, to, to tell them to, to, to quit worrying about all these crazy things they've heard, but return rather to what has been revealed to them about that great day to come. More than anything else, he's telling them to anchor yourself in God's word. And that's really the ultimate point. That's the ultimate takeaway for this lesson. Brothers, there's a lot of things in this life that will cause us to feel greatly shaken in mind. There's a lot of things that will happen that will make us feel alarmed and anxious and panicky. Perhaps it's similar to what those first Thessalonians were, were, were thinking about and afraid of. Maybe it's something that we're just unsure of about the end times and that makes us feel unsettled. Maybe it's that, that we're worried about dying. 
And maybe that's got us great alarmed. Maybe it's just living in this fallen world with all the crazy things that are happening around us and all the conspiracies and false teachings that come in and out of the church. Maybe that's got you, maybe that's got you alarmed. Whatever it is, this is what Paul says. Don't worry about all that. Just anchor yourself in God's word. What he has revealed to you. Anchor yourself in God's word. Because if you do, you'll be able to handle anything in this life and live lives worthy of your calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are lots of squirrels in this passage if you've read ahead. There's lots of, there's lots of pathways that we could go down, theories and things of that sort. But, but the main takeaway is Paul is saying, anchor yourself in God's word and set your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you do, as the Thessalonians found, you'll be able to handle anything and live a life pleasing to God. So let's read it together. 2 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he might be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they might believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to this section in your word with great humility. Because there's many things that I don't understand, many things that's hard for us to understand, but we do know that you give us your words so that we might know you and your will for our life. And so, Father, we do pray that you would send your spirit down upon us, that we wouldn't just be informed, but truly transformed by your spirit, that we might be comforted by your spirit and become more and more like your blessed son, our Lord and Savior, the risen Jesus Christ. We pray in his blessed name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, there's lots of heavy stuff in this passage. The man of lawlessness, this great rebellion, all sorts of strange things. What makes it even more difficult to understand is that a lot of these things that which Paul speaks of, these illusions that he makes, are a summary of a snippet of a one-sided conversation that we don't have the full picture of, which makes it really hard to understand some of these things in which he's saying. In fact, a really well-respected scholar, Leon Morris, said that this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of Paul's writings. 
And the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations through the ages. We do not possess the key to everything said here. And so it is well to maintain some reserve in our interpretations. That is just a scholar way of saying, I have no idea some of the things that Paul is talking about here. In fact, I'm going to give you the caveat up front with all the points that I have. I'm not sure. <laughs> so we're going to come to this passage with great humility, trusting that God will reveal to us in his word what he wants us to know. Having said that, there are two things that will help us in our studying this passage together. Two things that you know that I know, but just to remind you of. First off, brothers, God's word is trustworthy. God's word is his spoken word. The Bible is his spoken word. It's all authoritative. It's sufficient. It is necessary. It's inerrant. It's not always simple, but it's clear in what it teaches, especially when it's interpreted in light of Scripture. Everything that we need to know about God, his will for us to be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and how to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to him, he reveals to us in his life-giving word. Paul tells us elsewhere in his correspondence with Timothy that the Bible is God's breathed word, that it's profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness, including passages like this. So what that means is when we're studying difficult to understand passages like this in our private devotions, sometimes we become intimidated by them and we have the tendency just to skip over them. Don't do that because God has a word for you in this. Secondly, in spite of how this passage is grossly misused, first off in silly books trying to predict the end times, my favorite, 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1988. I wonder how many bookshelves still have that doozy on it. Or how it's sometimes misapplied in well-meaning but, but undeveloped theologies. Or in media, this passage along with every other passage in Scripture is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is not ultimately about this man of lawlessness or this age of rebellion. It is about the beauty and the glory and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I would argue that this is an Advent passage, which is very relevant for this Christmas season. I mean, what is Advent? Advent is when we look back and celebrate the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christmas, but we also look forward to his second coming with great eager expectation and joy. And that's Paul's intention for us in this passage. So remember, when we come to this passage, the apex of revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ. The center of redemption is the Lord Jesus Christ. The unequivocal object of our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you come to a passage like this, don't get caught up in crystal ball gazing, number crunching, political theorizing as so many do because you're going to miss the point. The point is the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And so what Paul wants us to get across in this passage is, brothers, root yourself, anchor yourself in God's word, and set your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his promised return. Because as we do, as we do, we will be able to face anything in this life and live a life that's pleasing and glorifying to him. Having said that, there are three things that Paul does make clear in this passage for our benefit. First off, Make no mistake about it. Take it to the bank that Jesus will come again. Jesus has come. 
And he will come again. He's addressing this church and he's saying, church, you have been deceived. You've been caught up in some sort of conspiracy theory, some sort of false teaching that's bewitched you. It's taken your eyes off the object of your hope. It's unrooted you from God's revelation, his revealed word. And you have forgotten your mission to seek first the kingdom of God. So forget all of that nonsense. Come back to what God has revealed to you about the last days already. And set your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he has come and he will come again. That is the point of this passage. When you take away all the obscure things, that's what Paul is driving home. That's the main point, that Jesus will come again. Verse 1, now concerning. That's Paul's way of saying, now let's get down to brass tacks. Let me tell you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gathering us up. Paul's excited about this. And he wants us to be excited about it too. Paul wants us to fixate, to set our minds on that day to come. As Christians, we are a linear people. We believe history is headed somewhere. And so Paul wants us to be oriented towards that future and to think rightly about that future because whatever you believe about the future will dictate how you live in the present. And Paul says, on that great day to come, Jesus will come. Now, before we talk more about the second coming, I think there's a couple of preliminary things that we need to talk about. Because in regards to the second coming, there's usually this teaching that's associated with it called the rapture. All of us have heard about the so-called rapture. In, in the Greek, it's actually pyrrhusia. But nevertheless, we, we've heard about the rapture, and there's a few things that I want us to think about because it's so closely tied with this text in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. The Bible, without question, talks and teaches about the rapture. He briefly mentions it here, gathering us up. He talks about it in technicolor form. In 1 Thessalonians, with all of the sights and sounds that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 13 through 17. I believe George taught on that passage and go back and listen to it. But it, it's, it's glorious. It's mind-bending. So the Bible absolutely talks about it. What I don't think we can take from Scripture is that the second coming, the day of the Lord, his gathering us all up are different events that take place over the course of time. Now, there are certain theologies that would, would say that. For example, pre-tribulational dispensationalists. I know that's a fancy word, but it's depicted in the fiction uh, Left Behind books of where Jesus returns and he, he, and he rescues uh, his people from prior to the tribulation. Then after a certain amount of time, he comes back in judgment, the second coming. They're different events. I don't think we can take from Scripture that there's separate events spread out throughout history. There's different opinions on Revelation chapter 20, the millennium, but still, from all of Scripture, taking it, interpreting it with, in light of itself, we cannot, I don't think, anyway, interpret that there are different events. Another thing that we certainly can know that is true about the Bible is that it does not say, nor does it teach, that the, that the rapture is some sort of escapist fantasy, which is also depicted in those Left Behind books and movies. Right, of where Jesus comes and rescues us from the material world, that he uh, rescues us prior to the tribulation, which I don't think you can square that away with Scripture, uh, from reading what Jesus says about be prepared for these things, and certainly what Paul says to these uh, Thessalonians. But that all that's left is people's underwear you know, laying about and you know, pilotless airplanes crashing into buildings as depicted in those movies, which scared the dickens out of me as a child. Right? But I don't think the Bible teaches that. In fact, I think that's a mild form of Gnosticism. Because it depicts that Jesus only saves us spiritually and that anything physical and material is evil. 
That's a form of Gnosticism. Jesus, when he returns, he makes all things new, body and soul, heaven and earth. What I think the Bible teaches is that the second coming, the day of the Lord, is a single event at the end of history where there's a general resurrection between, with believers and non-believers alike, where the believers that are still living will be transformed and glorified, joined together with those believers who are raised in exalted glory, and together we'll join and welcome with great joy the descending Jesus Christ as he comes from heaven to make all things new on earth. Where Paul says in Romans 8, we'll be co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God, where we'll rule along the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if that doesn't get you pumped up, I'm not sure what will. Now, again, there's lots of acceptable theories about those end times, particularly with millennium in Revelation chapter 20. And if you pressed me about it, I would say what David Bowen told me yesterday, that I'm a pan-millennialist. As a Christian, I believe everything's going to pan out in the end. There is a great book, though, by Anthony Hokima about the Bible in the future. So I encourage you to go ahead and get that book. It's an excellent book for your bookshelf. It's very informative. But having said all of that, none of that is what these early Christians were worried about. They were not worried or concerned about the step-by-step process of how all of this is going to shake out. They were worried it wasn't going to happen at all. That's what they were worried about, that this second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and this resurrection of his people and making all things new, they were worried that wasn't going to take place. And what's really sad or, and, and, and concerning is that that false teaching is extremely relevant today. Did you know one of the primary held beliefs in the Protestant church, nominal church and some of the more liberal mainline churches, is that exact belief? That there isn't a historical or bodily second coming or resurrection? They would say that Jesus, well, he, he lives on through his teachings. And when you come to Jesus' teachings, that's when he makes his advent. That's when he comes to you. There isn't this historical, physical thing that will happen later, but he comes to us in his word. Resurrection, probably not, but but every time you read his word, he resurrects you spiritually and he fills you with his love. That's what they say. What kind of hope is that? That is no hope at all, brothers. And it's that delusion, it's that false teaching that's really everywhere today, if you listen closely. I saw this clip recently, I researched this because I'd seen it long ago and I tried to remember, remember it and I found it. It's from the old TV show ER. Do you remember that medical TV show ER? There's a scene that depicts the foolishness of that false teaching perfectly. There's this old man who is a great sinner in his life and he was dying from cancer and he was worried about what was on the other side of death. And so he calls the chaplain and then comes this postmodern woman with all the mumbo jumbo. And this man tells her about his life, the long list of evil things that he's done. And he said that he's terrified and asked, is there any hope of redemption, any hope for atonement for a man like me? And that woman said, hey, don't worry about all that. Just look inwardly, forgive yourself, and everything's going to be okay, trust me. And trying to be sweet with them. And in that moment, he becomes irate. He goes, what in the world are you talking about? I just told you about this laundry list of evil things that I've done, and you say that I'm the answer? I don't have time for that foolishness. I need someone who believes in a real God and a real hell, someone who knows real truth. Don't come at me with feelings. Come at me with what my hope is. And that captures perfectly reality. Because, brothers, there is no such thing as true hope and true comfort apart 
from a historically and bodily resurrected Jesus Christ who has promised to come again bodily and historically. That's our hope. And it captures that that perfectly. And that's the hope that Paul gives us in this passage in verse 1 when he says, let me tell you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gathering up his people. Because just as Jesus Christ was raised bodily and historically, in which there's a mountain of evidence, he has promised to return historically and bodily. And just as he has called the first fruits of new creation, which means there's a whole lot more coming in the final harvest, all of those who are united to Jesus by faith will one day raise in glory too. Paul says that day is happening. And he says to this church and he says to us, fixate your eyes on the day of the Lord. That day is coming. Fixate your eyes on it. Set your clocks by it. Meditate on it. Rejoice in it. It is your lighthouse in the stormy seas of life. Forget what lies behind you and look towards that day to come as he tells us in Philippians 3. And Jesus Christ himself in Matthew, or rather Mark 14 tells us while we don't know the precise hour of when that day will happen, nor does the Son of Man, he does say, church, be ready for it. Think about that day. Live and labor in light of it. And as you do, this is the promise that he gives us in John 14. Do not be troubled about anything. Or using Paul's language, do not be shaken in mind or alarmed by anything. Believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. I will gather up my people that where I am, you may be also. That's Paul's way of saying, the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming. So brothers, do not be shaken. That's our hope. Now the second thing he tells us is about this great rebellion. (laughs) Verses 3 through 12. Now up until this point, particularly in his first letter, Paul did not want this church to get bogged down with the nearness or the farness of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's a good pastor, and he knows at this point in their history, these folks were worried that the day of the Lord was not coming. And so he gives them a couple of bones. He says two things got to happen before the day of the Lord comes. And so this is my attempt to kind of summarize this passage. It's very discombobulating, but this is essentially the argument that Paul is making in verses 3 through 12, the conversation that's taking place. This church comes to Paul. Paul, we are scared out of our minds that we've missed the day of the Lord. Paul says, well, have you seen the two signs? And they said, well, what signs are you talking about? He goes, you know the signs. We've, been t- we- we've talked about this before. There's two great signs, the great rebellion and the man of lawlessness. Have you seen those things? No, we haven't seen those things. Then you don't got to worry because the day of the Lord hasn't arrived yet. That's generally the conversation that's being taken place here. Now, what makes it difficult to understand, like we already said, right? This is just a summary of one snippet of one side of a conversation that had taken place in the past. So it's really hard for us to understand all the things that are happening, going on right here. So the question is, how in the world are we supposed to to read this passage and try to get a handle on it? Whenever you come to this passage or other New Testament eschatological prophecies, there's usually about four ways to approach those texts. And this is some preliminary stuff before we dive in to our passage. There's four ways, four approaches to interpret New Testament prophecies about the end times. 
Okay, so you can write these down if you want or you can come back and listen later. The four different approaches. The first one is the preterist approach. That's Peter with an R right after the P, the preterist approach. And it says that all prophecies made in the New Testament were fulfilled in the first century under Nero and the fall of Jerusalem. So what that is saying is whenever you read a prophecy in the New Testament, it is not pointing beyond that first century. All of them are fulfilled under the reign of Nero and the fall of Jerusalem. That's one theory. Another theory is the historist approach. This says that all the signs and prophecies characterize the entire period of the church age between the first and second advent. So it's not pointing to any one historical event, but rather it's describing the spirit of the age between the first and the second advent. The third approach is the futurist approach. That says these signs and prophecies only concern future events it has no relevance of what's happened in the past or the present. It's only things that we can look forward to. Each of those theories have their merit, but not one of them by themselves fully contain all what these New Testament prophecies accomplish. So I really love what Anthony Hukima said, the man I mentioned earlier. He said the best approach for interpreting passages like this is to combine all three. Realizing that most of the eschatological signs that were, were fulfilled in the first century, but they also established a trend that would typify the church age. In addition, they would have their final concentrated fulfillment in the time immediately before Christ's return. So an example of this would be the Olivet Discourse in Jesus' ministry. A lot of the things that he says in those passages happened in the first century. But reading that passage, certainly in conjunction with the rest of Scripture, it is clear that Jesus was looking beyond the first century to the end times. So take our passage, for example. Paul is saying something very similar to what the Apostle John said in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. In that passage, John notes that currently there is an age of antichristness. There will be an ultimate antichrist, John says. But right now, we live in an age where lots of little smaller antichrists are going to pop up. And there's been people throughout church history that have fit that bill. There will be an ultimate antichrist, but, but we also live in an age where all these different little smaller antichrists pop up. That's what he says explicitly in 1 John chapter 2. Paul says the same thing here if you read closely. He says we currently live in an age of lawlessness. There's an age, there's a mystery of lawlessness at work. There's lots of little antichrists or people that, that would characterize that lawlessness. However, all of this will eventually culminate to the final embodiment of evil, one who will make his appearance on those last days, whom Paul describes as the man of lawlessness. All right, so in this passage, Paul is focusing on that end time thing. All right, so that's all the preliminary stuff. Let's dive in and talk about this great rebellion because there's two things about this great rebellion that Paul wants us to know. First off, it's the leader of this rebellion. And secondly, it's the dynamics of this rebellion. The leader of this rebellion, who is this person? Paul gives us a lot of descriptions about what this person will be like. The first and main description is in verse three, his title, the man of lawlessness. That is, that is that he is an antinomian. He is completely opposed to law. Paul isn't saying that he's just a rule breaker. He'll most certainly be a rule breaker. But it's not like he, he notices God's law or any law and says, oh, I'm going to break that. I mean, he will do that. But, but a man of lawlessness, the idea of law isn't even in his purview. 
He is completely disposed of. He's opposed, I mean, it's like an ant to him. He does not care anything or know anything or, or worry about anything. He's not concerned about the moral law of God, first off, which, of course, is summarized in those two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. That's nothing to him. And most scholars say this also includes civil law, God's common grace, which causes human flourishing. This man is the epitome of selfishness. The only thing important to him is his own desires, his own wants. That is more real to him, more sure than any law on the outside of himself. He's completely opposed, disdains the things of God, the law of God in human flourishing. That's who this joker is, the man of lawlessness. Second thing. Not only does he oppose God, but he will also exalt himself over God. Verse 4, to put it short, he rejects God and sets himself up as God. Now, that's exactly what Adam did in the garden. At the end of the day, that's what we are doing in our sin. We're saying we know better than God. But Paul is talking about the fullest manifestation of that. This man literally reject God and set himself up as God to be worshipped. Look at these subdescriptions. Paul says false signs and wonders. Paul is saying that this guy is a cheap imitation of the coming Christ. He's a pseudo-Christ, the anti-Christ. Another description, he will take seat square in the middle of the temple. Now this is one of those descriptions that have so much theories and so much debate back and forth about what Paul is talking about, that this anti-Christ, this man of lawlessness, will sit in the temple. Is he talking about the old Jerusalem temple? that someone's going to have to go back and rebuild the temple, then once that's rebuilt, sit in the temple and claim himself to be God. Probably not, but I don't know. Another uh, theory is that Paul is talking about the church. That could be the case, I'm not sure. I like what Tim Keller says. He says it's probably best to think about that particular verse as metaphorical, describing the extreme idolatry and self-worship this man of lawlessness will bring. And I like what he says. He goes, what was at the heart of the temple in Jerusalem long ago. In the Holy of Holies, there was a box. And in that box was the law. And on top of that box was a golden slab of which the high priest would come in and make sacrifice and sprinkle blood on behalf of himself and the people of God. He says, a mystery upon which all life proceeds that points to the mystery of the gospel that says, my life for yours. It was a sign, a signpost in the center of that temple that pointed to the gospel, the sacrifice of Christ that says, my life for yours. That's the mystery of who God is. That's the mystery of his love. And Tim goes on to say, of course, if we look to Jesus who says, my life for yours, and we believe in him and rest in him, we receive his grace, experience his forgiveness, and his law becomes honey to our lips. But the point that he makes is that the evil one, the man of lawlessness, hates that. He hates God. He hates the gospel. He wants to replace that. That's the point. So he's a man of lawlessness. He exalts himself over God. And lastly, he is aligned with Satan. Verse 9, Paul tells us, yes, this final antichrist is the greatest embodiment of evil, but he is nothing more than a puppet of Satan himself. So who is this guy? Paul is ambiguous. He gives us a lot of descriptions of what this person will be like, but he doesn't say who it will be. Most people think it's going to be some sort of politician. I think like every president since Washington has been labeled at one time or another the final Antichrist. But Paul doesn't say that's going to be a politician. It could be. We don't know. 
Of course, there's lots of people throughout church history, as the Apostle John says, who have the characteristics of the Antichrist, but the church has misfired often about who this final one will be. So we have to approach this with humility. In fact, I love what Jared Voss says. He says when it comes to end-time prophecies, particularly this one, we must have the humility to understand that the best and final exegete will be its fulfillment. That is, I don't know, we're just going to have to wait and see. And that's a good approach to take, with humility. That's why I think it's more important that we focus on the dynamics of this rebellion than the leader. It's important for us to know what that leader will be like. But notice what Paul says about the dynamics of this rebellion. Paul does not specify as to what form this rebellion will take or what it will look like, but he does use a word. He uses the word apostasy. And what that means is, in the revolt this Antichrist will lead, which was again directed towards God and his law, will certainly include non-believers. It will even infiltrate the nominal church. Those people who have just been playing a game this whole time, who have never rooted themselves in the gospel, somehow, someway will buy into whatever this man of lawlessness is selling. Which makes verse 7, I think, very sobering. What does Paul say in verse 7? He says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. All right, so he's talking about this end-time man of lawlessness, but he also says in verse 7, this mystery, this power, this essence of lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness, another word for that is sin. The problem of sin has been at work since the fall. And it's going to continue to grow as we've seen in Scripture and have experienced in our own life. This problem of sin will grow and grow and grow. Ultimately, it will come to a head in this full fire rebellion. But Paul says, but, but the groundwork has already been laid. The power, the mystery of this lawlessness is already at work. And so what Keller says, instead of us trying to fixate on who that person is or, or when this is going to be, the name of the game for men like us, true believers, is simply to take up a posture of repentance and admit the fact that power of rejecting God and his gospel, despising the law, I mean, that's at the very core of our fallenness. I mean, that's our sin problem. And so he says what we must do as believers is just have a posture of repentance and admit the fact that, that we have that tendency. And to turn away from our own lawlessness and, and marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his grace, experience his forgiveness, and, and then his law will be honey to our lips. But, but that's what he says. That's what Paul is driving us to. He's like, hey, don't worry about all that stuff. Just folks fixate your eyes and your hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you got to worry about. Paul says, yes, there is going to be a great rebellion. That's going to happen. But remember, this rebellion is already at work. Therefore, fixate your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nestle yourself in his word and ultimately believe his promises because he will come again. And when he comes, lastly, believe that he's going to win. This great rebellion ain't nothing. He's going to win. In spite of what post-millennial eschatology says that Christ returns after this golden age of where the church will triumph over the world, this passage urges us to anticipate. Now, there will be tribulation. There will be suffering. I mean, there's, there's a great spiritual war going on, Paul tells us elsewhere. Jesus himself tells us to, to be prepared. I mean, for my sake, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to experience these things. 
Therefore, the reason that this passage was so comforting to that early church, the reason it ought to be comforting to us, is because it assures us that when Christ returns, he's going to win. And that comfort is sprinkled throughout this passage, if you're paying attention. Go back and read it later. But there's a couple of things that Paul wants us to hang our hats on. First off, he says, despite everything, trust that God is in control. Look at verses 6 through 7. Paul says, the man of lawlessness is only revealed after God decides to let him loose. In the meantime, God is restraining him. That is, God has him in a divine headlock. That's what's going on. The greatest embodiment of evil is utterly powerless in the powerful hands of our God. That's good news. And what's restraining him? This is another object of debate. The three, I think, permissible arguments, first off, would be the church, right? Or two, the common grace of government, which that kind of makes sense because Paul is using that word law all over the place. That could be it. Another one that I'm actually kind of sympathetic to is Michael the archangel. If you look at Daniel chapter 10, Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20, Michael is seen as restraining satanic principalities and fighting against the dragon. I kind of like that. I'm not sure if that's right or not. But again, that's not the point. The, Paul that, the point that Paul is making that we must believe and must understand and find great comfort and hope in is that God is the one who's in control. This world might feel like it's getting out of control, but God is in control. Even this great rebellion that will take place, Paul makes us aware that even when wickedness is at its peak, God is behind the scenes orchestrating everything, working everything out for his glory and for the good of his people. Verses 11 and 12, to those who have refused to love truth and so be saved, but delight in wickedness, God hands them over to their delusion. That's another way of saying that God will separate the the sheep from the goats. He will bring his people home. He will vindicate his people. Whenever things seem out of control, Paul says, we can trust that God is in control. As Psalm 2 says, we can trust that God is on his throne laughing at those who plot in vain. And as his people, we can trust that he is in control, working everything out, even hard things, evil things, working everything out for his glory and for the good of his own people. But secondly, Paul assures us that as evil as evil is and as lawless as the lawless one is, Christ will have the last word. In fact, he will have the last breath. Verse 8. Friends, the most powerful picture in this passage has nothing to do with the lawless one. It has nothing to do with the rebellion. The most powerful picture in this passage is what Paul says in verse 8, that the Lord Jesus will kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. Can you picture that? Everything that's more powerful than us, the greatest evil, Jesus will reduce to nothing with the breath of his nostrils. Just as you can blow out a candle, Jesus will blow out all the fires of hell. That is the power of Christ. And that is what Paul says to fixate your eyes upon. Don't be shaken. Christ is going to return. And when he returns, he will destroy all evil and he will turn back the curse and make all things new as he gathers up his people. Brothers, that is the hope of Advent. And that is the hope that I think God wants us to cling to this Christmas. One of my favorite Advent songs, Christmas songs, is a version 
of Silent Night, actually sung by Simon Garfunkel, is called Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News. It was produced in 1966, and it's haunting. He, he sings the carol that we know and love, and overlaid on top of it is a news broadcast from 1966. And so in one ear, if you're listening to it on the headphones, in one speaker you hear the beautiful melody, the comforting lyrics of that, of that carol we know. But in the other speaker, you hear some of the more horrific broadcasts of the Vietnam War in 1966. And melded together, just it's, it's unsettling. And I think he probably made that song to mock Christianity, of how could you possibly hope in Jesus when all the world is going to hell in a handbasket? Unwittingly, though, he captures perfectly the hope of Christians. Because, brothers, Jesus did not come into this world oblivious to evil. He came to destroy it. The Bible, in spite of what our nativity sets look like, does not depict Christmas as this peaceable scene. If you look at the Apostle John describe Christmas story in his letters and in Revelation and in this passage, the Christmas story is the first chapter of a war story that ends all wars. Jesus did not come to us as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, motivational speaker to get us in touch with our feelings. He came as God's warrior. He came as our rescuer to destroy the works of Satan, John says, and to take back what is rightfully his, namely, you and me. And that's what Paul reminds us of in technicolor form in this passage. Christ is coming. So brothers, do not be shaken. Do not be panicky. Do not be fearful. But root yourself, anchor yourself in God's revealed word. Set your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and on that great day to come because he has come and he will come again. And when he does, he wins. And because of that, you are more than a conqueror. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel of Jesus. And we are so grateful for your life-giving word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would cause us to believe more deeply in the gospel, that we might be filled with boldness and joy as we long for the day in which Christ returns. We pray in his blessed name. Amen.